Hey, it's Melissa Rivers, and welcome to Group Text. Stay tuned for a new episode. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Group Text. Okay, let's discuss. Sabrina, how much we loved our cult episode. Yes, Rick Ross, a friend of Group Text. Yes, our cult expert is back. Because everyone's talking about all these shows about Nexium. We've got The Vow and Seduced and all these different shows coming on the heels of the sentencing of Keith Ranieri and all of his cohorts. So bring us up to speed. Last time we talked about it, we had Catherine Oxenberg, and she was trying to get her daughter out. What bring bring? Give us the Reader's Digest of to bring us up to speed. Okay, Catherine Oxenberg and her daughter India are reunited. India is um, last I heard living with her mother, engaged to be married, happy, but seeking justice because of what Keith Ranieri and Nexium did to her. She had been branded with a cauterizing iron and uh, really tortured by the group. And so she, uh, in the in the series Seduced, is seeking justice. Claire Bronfman, who spent over $100 million of her inheritance from the Seagram's liquor fortune, was sentenced to almost seven years in prison. And Keith Ranieri uh, has been sentenced to 120 years in prison with federal guidelines, uh, as I understand it, he's going to have to serve at least 102. So he's 60. So if he lives to be 162, he can get out. And still still awaiting sentencing, the, the actress Allison Mack from Smallville, uh, Nancy Salzman, her daughter Lauren Salzman, uh, and the bookkeeper, Kathy Russell. They're all still waiting for to be sentenced. Why do you think this cult in particular has gotten so much attention? Because the first time we talked was really the first time that any of us were learning about it. And because of all the publicity with Catherine going so public, trying to get her daughter out and these women stepping forward, it was a New York Times cover story. Why, why do you think this particular cult blew up? Um, the extremes. I mean, this guy creating sex slaves, branding more than 100 women, reportedly, torturing them. Uh, and of course, the celebrities involved. I mean, at one point, there were two Seagram's heiresses involved, Claire Bronfman, Sarah Bronfman. Uh, there were actors involved, uh, Kristen Krupp from Smallville, Allison Mack. Uh, there were just a lot of notable people involved. Catherine Oxenberg, her husband uh, at one time, Casper Van Diem was involved. So there were all these people that uh, we're familiar with that were involved in Nexium, And it was really like uh, the rich and famous that were recruited by Keith Ranieri and his people. It, it, it's so fascinating to me because in in learning a little bit about Nexium from watching The Vow, you, even a rational human being, understands why it's attractive. It's a little bit, it comes off a little bit like group therapy. Yeah. In the sense of like, there was something that I saw in the series about uh, blame is an excuse. You know, and when you think about that, you're like, yeah, that kind of makes some sense. Blaming someone is an excuse for, you know, allowing a situation to happen. Those, so there are certain things that I understand why people feel pulled into these different things and different, specifically this cult. What I can't understand, and they talk about this, is how rational people don't see the red flags earlier. I think the vow really gets into that because what they tried to do in the vow uh, is show these people in their process of getting recruited, getting involved, and how good it looked and how uh, difficult it would be to see exactly what was going on as you were initially being pulled in. And I think a lot of these people were recruited by friends, people they trusted, 
uh, people they respected. Uh, and they, they assumed that, you know, if these good people are in this and, and they think it's okay, it's okay. You know, and a lot of what they baited the hook with, and it's really kind of a bait and switch on, is what Keith Ranieri ran. It, it looked good. It looked appealing. You know, uh, self-affirmation, uh, self-actualization, uh, being more assertive. And Ranieri uh, took uh, a piece of Scientology, a piece of Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism, a bit of Amway because he was an Amway distributor at one time. And a lot of uh, the structure of landmark education that does the forum that also teaches there are no victims and you can't blame anybody, take responsibility for your actions. And then he, in, and then he threaded uh, the Socratic method of questions and answers to get at the truth. So he took some stuff, he put it all together in his mishmash and, and he got a lot of really attractive uh, uh, people that had, had appealed to shill it for him and pull these people in. And some of them, I think, were going through a difficult time in their life. Uh, and and they, they were more vulnerable than they would otherwise be. I think that's a typical story. But like India was brought in by her mother, Catherine Oxenberg. Uh, Lauren Salzman, who's awaiting sentencing, was brought in by her mother, uh, Nancy Salzman, when she was like just out of teenage years. I've learned a lot from watching that. And they do do a deep dive into people being in this process. But I always feel like, and with all of them, I always feel like there's got to be two people who at night close the door. Because these are all, by the way, businesses. They're right. all and, making right. money. They're making money hand over fist. And you would think that some of these participants would go, wait, hold on. They have just drained me dry. Do I but, feel happy? Right. So I, I always feel like there's some two people behind a closed door at night going, wow, yeah, wow we are just pulling this off. You know, yeah. I often can't believe that like a Keith Raniere really believes his shit. Well, oh, yes, he I, does. I don't know. No, I mean, are I they just like these masterminds that go like, Okay, this is a business. I mean, we could go through businesses that are just as as seductive and dangerous. Well, let me tell you, I have sat for hours with Keith Ranieri. And, you know, he's a, he's a he's a con man. I don't think he really believed his his operation, his his philosophy that he called rational inquiry. It was just a means to an end. What Keith Ranieri believed in most of all was himself and his desire for power and control over women, his desire to get as much money as he could grab and take care of himself. I mean, he's, he's a typical psychopath, narcissistic personality. Uh, he had no sense of right or wrong. It was just whatever works to get me what I want. And he, he just destroyed so many lives. And he, he was like a record ball and uh, absolutely devoid of empathy, devoid of sympathy, uh, at, at minimum of sociopath, in my opinion, a psychopath, a deeply disturbed person who, according to reports from the time he was 10 years old, was abusing women, uh, girls. He, uh, he, would, he would like uh, stalk a girl. He would intimidate a girl. He would blackmail a girl in grade school. So this was a guy who was almost hardwired from birth as a predator. And that's what he was. And he, he, he was dishonest. He was deceptive. He really took advantage of people. But also, it's like we, we get back to the business thing. It's not like he was living large. That's what I find so interesting because so many of these cult-like leaders end up living large. And that's usually the kiss of death for them, is why are they flying around on their private plane? Oh, uh, no, Keith Ranieri did. At one point, you're right. He lived in his little stinky condo in, in uh, Colony Park. I think it was an, a suburb of Albany. But eventually, he did live in a pretty big house. Nancy Salzman lived in a McMansion. Uh, Claire Bronfman brought, bought a huge estate in the Albany area where they hung out. Uh, and they did fly on the Bronfman private jet. 
uh, back and forth to New York City and whatever. So there were perks. And keep in mind that when Keith Ranieri was arrested, he was arrested in a villa that rented for, I think, at least 20000 a month in, in Puerto Vallarta. And it was a very luxurious place. And before that, he was in uh, another part of Mexico living in a gated in environment in another villa. So, and he was waited on hand and foot by this inner circle of women that would cater to his every whim. So he lived a good life and uh, he, he, you know, it's, it's nice to be king. In yes. your, your, your hours of spending time with him, did he ever give you any sort of insight why he felt the need to have these women, you know, branded? You know, I'm, I'm hoping in prison that some way, somehow, his initials are carved, carved out or branded in some way. How does he do that to a, another human being? I, I've, I've just, it yeah, makes just me wait. sick just to think about it. Just wait till prison. He's going right, to. Right, well, he raped, he raped children. He raped a 12-year-old girl. He raped a 14-year-old girl. See, now, wait, I, why aren't, why, like, I didn't see that part of it. Like, where were their parents? Well, they were themselves caught up in, in Nexium, uh, one of the girl's parents. Another he raped, uh, and, and I don't know that her, her mother had anything to do with Nexium. Uh, he lived in the neighborhood. He befriended her. Uh, he's a pedophile. I mean, he would have women on a 500-calorie-a-day diet where they would become emaciated. And I think very similar to the cult leader, David Koresh, who led the Waco Davidians, who did exactly the same thing and raped a 10-year-old, who I later met as a teenager. Uh, he, he wanted women to become childlike, little wayfish uh, skin and bones. And, and I think he's a misogynist. I think he truly hates women. And, and I say that because he would humiliate women and he would stalk women and terrorize women. And he would always set women up to take the fall for him. Nancy Salzman as the president or, or chief uh, executive officer of Nexium, Claire Bronfman, uh, she attended a court-ordered mediation and the litigation that Ranieri ran against me for 14 years. And Claire Bronfman was there representing Nexium, and she didn't know what to do. She had to wait for instructions by text or by phone from Ranieri. And uh, so what I saw, and I saw Nancy Salzman and Ranieri together, and she was like a ghost. And if he even uh, cleared his throat, she would stop in mid-syllable to allow him to speak. So, so this was a guy who, who really wanted to have power and control over women. And for him, I think sex was all about power and control. And he was, bottom line, he was a pedophile. Wouldn't it be easier just to get a hooker and, you know, or go to one of those sex clubs and find someone who you could have, sex, you know, do get all your fantasies out? It seems like a very, seems like a lot of work. <laughs> well, I, th I, I think that he, 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 he wanted these people to adore him, to worship him, to hang on his every word. In fact, he imprisoned a girl uh, that, that had the audacity to, ex to say, I am attracted to another man. I have feelings for another man other than you. Oh, great vanguard, which was the name that he right. was known by. And, and so, so he had her locked up for two years, for two years. See, that sounds very Scientology to me. Well, he got That's a, a lot of psych his... psycho. <laughs> yeah, yeah well, but like Scientology, they separate families and you go to that place in Florida. And I mean, I, in, in all clear, in all uh, transparency, I had a friend, an ex-manager whose sister was a Sea Org. And we were mm -hmm. both really down in a place mm -hmm. in our lives, and they had us come for dinner at the Celebrity Center here in Hollywood. And it's, they target, they know exactly what will be seduce, seductive to you. Yeah. Exactly what will be seductive to you. And it's fascinating. I mean, I had my one dinner and then a couple of conversations on the phone, and suddenly I felt like, ugh, why are they giving me homework? Like, I don't want to do this. <laughs> and I was like, they're like, you have to read this, and you have to do that. And I'm like... I was sitting on a plane. I'm like, 
I don't want to do homework. And then they're like, have you finished? And I'm lying like I was back in high school. Oh, yeah, it's uh, on my desk. You know what I mean? Baby like, steps. Huh? Baby yeah. steps, but I'm like, That's I'm how out. they get you. Right. But I mean, I was like, no, this is ridiculous. Was so, the food good? The food was excellent. Yeah, I heard their brunch on Sunday is really their good. Their food is <laughs> excellent. So, Rick, you you know our little our little beast here. That was the first thing she said. Girl, the food. Let me tell you, <laughs> an excellent service, like great well, service, good food, friendly people. I'm like, this is awesome. Uh, yeah. And then they're like, here, you need to buy these six books, and they're due on Thursday. It's like, ugh, I can't do this. Um, what I find though, it it, it seems like. You know, not that I think about cults a lot. It seems like all of these cults are very, very successful. And then suddenly something happens at the top and someone goes too far. Yeah, that's the key. That's and, the key is they go too far. Keith Ranieri could never get enough and he kept pushing it. And finally he crossed a bridge too far. The thing is, a lot of these leaders are very smart I mean, they're very intelligent people on many levels. How come they don't have that sort of like, okay, this is going to go too far and blow the whole scam? Like I said, I still think there's people behind behind closed doors going, can you believe we're pulling this shit off? Well, I think some of them are really smart and to get away with it. Like Reverend Moon died at the age of 92 and he presided over a $1 billion empire that he left to his family. And uh, so, you know, I mean, the guy did pretty well with the Unification Church. And then you have Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, who who began TM and was kind of a cult guru. And when he died, also in his 90s, uh, in a palace in Europe, he was worth maybe anywhere from six to $9 billion. And when L. Ron Hubbard died, uh, the founder of Scientology here in, uh, you know, he died in California. Uh, I think they estimated his, his fortune at over 600 million, though now Scientology has a book value of estimated about 3 billion. So some of these people get away with it. They live out their life. They don't go to prison. Uh, and uh, some of them push it too far. For example, uh, Werner Earhart, who has been called a cult leader, who started Landmark Education that does the forum. But it's really uh, Est, right? Yeah, Est, Earhart mm-hmm. Seminars Training. And uh, I remember as a kid growing up, all of my mom's and dad's friends, all the Hollywood group, went to Est. And right. what exactly was Est? Because that seems to be like the, the it, thing everyone spun off of. It was very much like Nexium. I would call it large group awareness training, kind of like group therapy with without the accountability of a licensed uh, board certified therapist who is accountable. So uh, what it is, is basically a three day weekend and it's very intense and you don't get a lot of sleep and you're with the same people hour after hour after hour. And you have a trainer and who's facilitating and you go through this cathartic experience that I would call coercive persuasion to, um, embrace the philosophy of Werner Erhard, which is a hodgepodge of uh, Scientology says a lot of it was stolen from them. Uh, Some of it from a German philosopher, Heidegger, and other sources. And that's the cure-all, is that you go through this process and it leads you to the conclusion that you will accept Erhard's philosophy. But Erhard, who is now, uh, you know, a very rich man, I mean, uh, Landmark Education bills probably somewhere between 75 and $100 million a year in fees. And they're all over the world. And Earhart never went to prison. He never pushed it too far. He came close. Uh, he was in trouble for a while in, in the early 90s, but he managed to get- What was he in clear. trouble for? It's always oh, taxes that eventually get you. It was taxes and Scientology supposedly was after him and- he had a very uh, unhappy divorce that was going on and allegations of sexual abuse by his children and physical abuse by his wife and disgruntled former employees that were talking about how horrible he was. So he kind of disappeared for a while and he surfaced eventually in Georgetown in the Cayman Islands 
you know, where he may have banked some of his money. And I think now he's uh, maybe past 80 and uh, he's, he, he never went to jail. He, he weathered the storm, so to speak. I would say he tweaked Landmark a little bit to make it not quite as bad as it used to be. Uh, though I still get complaints about the form from many people. Uh, and and let me tell you, Earhart sued me for a million dollars, uh, Landmark. They wanted me to take all the information off of polkaeducation.com about Landmark. But when Earhart realized that I was going to be represented pro bono, I w he wasn't going to be able to hammer me with legal fees, and he was going to have to submit to discovery he bailed. He dismissed his own lawsuit. Unlike Ranieri, who kept going for 14 years, and I would say that was one piece of what undid him, his relentless litigation. He didn't know when to bail. Earhart was smarter, and when Earhart saw that it wasn't to his advantage, he, he cut his losses and dropped his litigation. I have a bunch of friends who are part of Landmark. And they're always like, you have to do it, you have to do it. I'm like, no, you know, I don't have to do it. Explain to people what exactly Landmark is. It's, there's Landmark and there's LifeSpring, which oh, seem well, to be the big trendy ones right now. Well, LifeSpring, uh, I think LifeSpring is basically defunct now because they, they were involved in a lot of personal injury lawsuits. How, do you, get involved, if you're, how do you get involved in personal injury lawsuits? Anything uh, could happen. People, you, you bruised, you you fell down and bruised your brain. Like uh, what? Uh, Melissa, people had psychotic breaks. They snapped in the stress of of going through the process. I have had families call me up and say, "Look, my brother is on a gurney now. He's going into a mental hospital. He's catatonic. He's not talking to me. And all I know is he did the form, and and now he's." He's, he's a mess. And I've had people call me and say I had a breakdown because of the forum. And I was involved in, uh, as an expert witness, in one litigation that settled where, where a woman made some very serious allegations against Landmark regarding personal injuries. So people experience negative results from the training. Uh, they may have had a breakdown. They may have, uh, you know, just been hospitalized as a result of it uh, because it can be very coercive very stressful they're asking you to confess about everything in your life now imagine this and i've heard this related to me in these training seminar weekends that somebody stands up and they say you know i was raped or i was molested as a child and they talk about how that is such a deep wound in their life and the trainer is saying there are no victims Get over it. Get over it. And that can be very damaging to people to be to be talked to like that and to be bullied in, in a group where you're isolated and everybody is supporting the leader and saying, yeah, get over it. Get over it. There are no victims. There are no victims. Stop blaming. And uh, people just snap. Wow. But don't you think at those points, wouldn't it be a red flag where you go, I don't really belong here. Oh, yeah. I've talked to people who have failed in the midst of the training, or they've been told that they're uncoachable and asked to leave. I'll tell you a funny story quickly. Uh, I repeatedly was told, you have to do the training. You can't be critical of Landmark unless you've done the training. So I finally agreed, I'll do the training, but I won't pay for it. And then Landmark was going to bring me through uh, the, the, the forum in New York. They, they, they have a, a big center in Manhattan. And so uh, I agreed to do that. And then I was contacted by someone representing Landmark. And they said, well, you're not really going to do the forum, but you're going to be led through and you can see uh, kind of like snapshots of what it's like. And I said, no, I'm not interested in a, in a guided tour. I just want to do it. And then they said no. And then it got out that they said no. And then they have finally said, okay, okay, you can do it, but you have to sign all this paperwork in which you agree to binding arbitration if you have an injury. If something happens to you, you cannot just sue us. You have to go through binding arbitration. And of course, that's a poison pill to litigation that 
no no personal injury lawyer would want to be involved in because it's very limited. You and keep so, saying personal injury. It's like, what are they hitting each other? Are they? Yeah, what are they? Doing? What are they doing? Uh, do you have people, to? I mean, it would be like me. I'm like, do I have to run across a marble floor in socks? I mean, to me, that's just uh, dangerous. Uh, you're going through uh, guided imagery. You're you're laying there, kind of uh, mesmerized, and they're leading you through. Uh, your life. Uh, they're soliciting cathartic confession from you. What is the deepest pain in your life? The most terrible thing that ever happened to you. They're talking to you about calling people on the phone and apologizing and mending fences with people that have caused you pain. So we're talking about an emotional roller coaster. Mm -hmm. And some people go off the track. And in fact, a group of psychiatrists Wrote, wrote papers about the occurrence of psychotic breaks in in landmark education, the forum or Earhart seminars training. So do they like get up and hurt themselves or punch somebody? I mean, when you say personal injury. I, I'm i describing personal injury as having a kind of breakdown. Oh, okay. That, okay. That it's more of an, okay. That, that requires psych, psychiatric treatment. And mm -hmm. by the way, this also happened in Nexium. There was one woman, uh, Kristen Snyder, who walked out of a Nexium intensive at, you know, these intensives, by the way, would go on for 16 days. And she walked out, left a suicide note, and killed herself. Uh, there was another woman that called me. Uh, I later found out she was one of a few women that this happened to. She had a psychotic break in the midst of her training in Albany, uh, and she was hospitalized. Uh, later, she contacted me because I uh, published three papers by mental health professionals, two by a psychologist, one by a psychiatrist, explaining what was wrong with Nexium's training and what, you know, what damage it could cause. And she called me up and said, thank you for having those papers online because I just thought I was crazy. I didn't realize they made me that way. They pushed me too hard. And when I read the papers, I understood and it helped me. So, so they, they really do try to push you to your most vulnerable point. Right, right. Because coercive persuasion, if you will, is, is three stages. Edgar Schein wrote about this in his book, coercive persuasion who's a professor at MIT. And the first step is break people down, break them down. The second is when they are broken, then offer them the change, you know, and change them. And then third, lock them into that change. And you do that by a peer group, by a support group, by an environment. And so that is what uh, these large group awareness training things do. They, they kind of hit on you over a period of time, you're getting tired, you're there for hours, you're isolated, you're not getting accurate feedback, you're not getting alternative, uh, you know, information, and they're, they're hammering on you. And then you kind of fold, and you feel like, help me, help me, give me, throw me a line, I'll grab it. And then they throw you the line and they pull you in. And they lock you in through that support system when you become immersed in the group and that subculture that the group sustains. It mm -hmm. frighteningly also sounds a lot like emotionally abusive relationships, which I sadly can speak uh, personally to. It sounds like very similar being broken down, broken down, broken down, broken down. And then only that person can give you the right answer. And, and also that person will say, don't listen to your old friends. Don't listen to your family. They will encourage you to isolate yourself. Mm -hmm. And uh, you, 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 you rely on them for validation. You rely on them for, for feedback. And eventually you succumb to them. You feel like uh, they alone can fix you. They alone can love you. That no one else can ever love you like that. And it's very similar to being in a cult, but it's just two people. Right. And it's, it's interesting because when I just stop now just to think about that, you know, I'm a pretty strong-willed person. So it really can happen to anybody. Um, that's why I feel like a lot of these ones that build themselves as business or executive training programs um, are really the most insidious, much more than some of the ones like, you know, David Koresh, which was like a, a more of a religious fanaticism. 
It, yeah. Do you find that? Do you find that these ones that are sort of, you know, wolves in sheep, sheep's clothing, re- a little bit more insidious and they, they feel very predatory? Oh, absolutely. I mean, Ranieri's initial offering was executive success programs, and he was selling success in business. And he was saying, if you are a business person, a professional, and you take my training, it's going to enhance your ability to be a success. And so Edgar Bronfman Sr., a multi-billionaire, took the course. He, he concluded that it was a cult. But in the process, his daughters became involved. Uh, the son of uh, the former president of Mexico, uh, Carlos Salinas, his son Emiliano Salinas became involved. And then he, in turn, uh, gathered people together that some of them are still doing it in Mexico, in Monterrey, in Guadalajara, in Mexico City. So all of them believe this is the way that I can empower myself it's going to help me. So it's a Trojan horse. You know, they sneak sneak themselves into your life in the guise of helping you. But in reality, what they want to do is have power and control over you and then exploit you. And it's very similar to an abusive controlling relationship. Mm-hmm. Do you find, you know, I, I mean, I'm just thinking now about like the Bronfmans. So one daughter got out, one stayed in and is now going to go to jail. She is in prison now. Or she is in prison now. How do you think they ever have that wake up call or do they feel like they're martyrs? Uh, I think Claire Bronfman thinks she's a martyr uh, mm-hmm. right to the bitter end. She was defending Keith Ranieri. Uh, Nikki Klein, who's an, uh, who's an actress that was in Battlestar Galactica, Apparently, she was branded, exploited by Keith Raniere sexually. Uh, she alluded to it in one interview, it seemed to me. And she still supports him. They have a group that literally danced to music uh, outside of where they thought he could see them from jail in Brooklyn. And they were still supporting him regardless of all the, the facts that we now know and how what a horrible human being he is and was. Well, they did. Um, Melissa and I were speaking uh, recently about Charles Manson and, you know, them taking his body. And it, it was the same kind of effect with his followers that he had, you know, he was imprisoned unjustly. And I mean, it, it was mind blowing to see this kind of response even till this day, you know, to the point where they were even fighting over his body. There was a thing on TMZ this morning about this guy that got like matching tattoos all over his face to like what Manson had. Literally, that was on TMZ this morning. It's, yeah, Man- it's amazing. Man- Manson is the most enduring icon of, of evil, you know, and, and people say he was a he was a counterculture artist or whatever. In reality, he was just a psychopathic, narcissistic cult leader. And Squeaky Fromm, who was his devoted follower, I think she still uh, sees him as this great person that changed her life and she still loves him and has uh, loving memories of him. But Leslie Van Houten, who was one of Manson's girls, who is still in prison, been denied parole repeatedly, uh, most recently by uh, the governor, even though she was uh, approved by the parole board, uh, I think she fully gets it. She realizes Mm -hmm. how he manipulated her, but sadly for her, she murdered people. uh, Oops. Being weaponized by him, and the murders were so horrible. They were heinous. Yeah, the Tate LaBianca murders. Heinous. Yeah. She stabbed Mrs. LaBianca multiple times. And even though she regrets it and realizes how she was abused and used, it doesn't change the fact that the LaBianca family was forever, forever uh, wounded. And, and, and it was just a terrible thing. One of their family called me and told me, I don't know how you feel about parole, but I think she should be there for the rest of her life. My family never got over those murders. We lost people that we love so much and we never recovered. And I think she should just stay there for the rest of her life. What about, I mean, again, and I go back to, you know, I know I'm jumping around cults. So you hear about like Lifespring, you know, what you said is gone. 
uh, uh, Landmark, which is like the hot one right now, before it was like Est and there was Primal Screaming, there were all these different ones that seemed to become trendy. What is the next one that you're starting to hear about on the horizon? That, you well, know, it's like diets. Everybody was keto. Everybody was, you know, this. Everybody was Atkins. Everybody was Zone. It feels like these sort of cult-like programs just, they're like, it's like whack-a-mole. They just keep coming at you. Well, you know, at, in the 80s, it was estimated there were 5,000 in the United States. Now the estimate is 10,000. It's it's a growth industry. And uh, if you're a religious cult, you can become a 501c3, be nonprofit and tax exempt. But the, I guarantee you the leaders profit from the group. I think the latest thing is groups that exist totally online. They recruit people through social media. Uh, they recruit followers on Twitter, on Facebook. They indoctrinate them through YouTube videos and then they suck up their money through PayPal. I think that is a phenomenon where you don't really meet the cult leader and there are any number of, of people that are using this uh, uh, medium in order to recruit and sustain members and they don't have to travel, they can just stay in one place and everything happens online. And I've seen a number of groups like that. What do you think is the next one we're really gonna hear about? Well, what we're, one group, one movement, I should say, that we're hearing more and more about is the uh, Black Hebrew Israelites. I've uh, heard of th them. This mm -hmm. is the flip side of white supremacy. Okay, mm -hmm. please explain this to me. Okay, mm -hmm. so these are the people that claim that African Americans are the new Israel or chosen people. The Jews are liars. Uh, white people are the Edomites. Uh, they are evil. And they have very charismatic leaders that lead them. One group is uh, Israelites United in Christ, led by Nathaniel Ray, who lives uh, uh, near New York. Uh, he once was a New York police officer. Uh, and now he heads this organization that has camps. They call them camps. And they recruit people online. They indoctrinate them through YouTube. You can pay them through PayPal. And th this is these kind of groups, these Black Hebrew groups, are proliferating across the United States. And I think with uh, the racial unrest in our country, some of the answers that they provide mm -hmm. uh, make sense to people who are deeply hurt by prejudice and hatred in our country and respond by joining one of these groups. I mean, that's another thing. These groups always, uh, they, they, they try to figure out what is the cultural thing, mm -hmm. the it factor that I can glom onto in the current uh, zeitgeist in, in the United States that I can use as my recruiting tool. And I think the Black Hebrew movement has done very well in recent years. Yeah, so, that they, they have all this propaganda that kind of draws you in and satisfies, oh, well, if society is against me and you're for me, then I need to align myself with you and we'll be stronger. You know, it'll be us against them. That's the mentality. Yeah, exactly. You hit on something that I honestly hadn't even thought about, which is with living in such divided and divisive times, everybody's looking for some group. Everybody's looking to feel supported. Everybody's looking for an answer. Everybody's looking for somewhere where they can breathe. Is that, do you think why people right now, like you said, it's gone to almost, the way you said, 10,000 groups. Do you think that's why people are, normal, logical people are becoming so susceptible to this? Well, yeah, and I think it, what, what the key word is clarity to me. So these groups give you clarity. They're looking at the world with COVID and with the polarization of politics in the United States and racial unrest and all the negative things that are happening, uh, you know, uh, climate change, everything. And it, it, it's overwhelming. And so what these groups do is they give simple prepackaged answers. Everything is black and white. They give clarity. And then they also give you a sense of community and acceptance, even if it's fake. I mean, that's the love bombing where you get into the group and they're acting so loving and accepting. And in reality, that's highly conditional based on whether or not you go along with the program. 
But I think in, in these troubled times, and especially with people staying at home and, and maybe quarantine or, or social distancing, they get online, they start Googling different things, the algorithms of some of, of, some of the online social media will bring them to things, uh, which is being tweaked now because some of the people like YouTube and, and Google are saying, hey, maybe we better fix that. But there are, there are all these predators online and people, it could be a, a, a minor child that is in uh, their bedroom and they're sitting there with their smartphone or, or, or their notepad or their laptop or whatever, and they're, they're going online and they can run into these groups. And depending upon what their interests are uh, and their vulnerabilities, that group can glom on and reel them in. So what are the warning signs? What are the warning signs that a group is more of a cult than say something helpful? And what do you, and what are the warning signs if you have someone that you see slipping into that? What can you do? Well, like, if, like well, a family member or friend is getting sucked in and you see it. Like I have a friend that is so hardcore uh, landmark and da 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 and you know we actually had a big argument about it, which I thought was interesting because I'm like you know he was like just try it just try it just try it just try it I'm like just no 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 <laughs> you know he's like it's it's a weekend I'm like no and by the way he swears it's changed his life and I have to say he is like a, the 2.0 version of himself. All right, for now, right. For, for now. now. But I'm just yeah. saying, so what, what are the, what should we be looking for that we realize these groups are not on the up and up and how do we see if someone's slipping too far into them and what do we do? I know that's a lot in one question. Okay. First of all, is the group obsessively focused on a leader who becomes an object of worship? Uh, that's a giveaway that it's a destructive cult. Uh, can you question the leader? Can you uh, criticize the leader? Or is any criticism uh, attacked, invalidated? Uh, is, is the group uh, democratic? Uh, do they have meaningful accountability for their leadership or do they not? Uh, do they have transparency? Is there a legitimate reason to leave? Do they recognize other groups as being alternatives to them, themselves? as being another way to improve yourself that is equal to their path? Or do they, they hold themselves off as being special and exclusive and our way is the only way? And then when you're dealing with someone, is their life radically changing? Are they becoming socially isolated? Uh, are they cutting off old friends and family? Are they becoming encapsulated, embedded in a new group? with new friends that they're obsessively talking about? Are they obsessively pitching somebody about their new experience in their group? Uh, and, and are they intolerant of any other frame of reference? And so when you begin to see these types of behaviors and changes, that might mean something is wrong. But the first thing to keep in mind is do not be confrontational. Do not say, oh, I think you're in a cult. Or, or say, hey, I think you're brainwashed. What's wrong with you? You mean how Sabrina uh, and I would probably handle uh, it? Uh, yeah. <laughs> you don't want to do that. Which What's wrong with think, you? Yeah, you, you want to, you know, be listen to them. You want to ask them questions like, well, what is this group? And where could I learn more about the group? Like, for example, their website, et cetera, their, their online presence. And you might drill down and study it. It might turn out to be a weird but not destructive group, or it might turn out that it is a destructive group. And what, another thing you look for is a pattern of grievances from people that have left. Is there a, a, a consistent pattern of grievances that illustrate that the group has hurt people and has hurt people over a period of time? So then uh, you might get my book, Cult Inside Out, and you might read about coping strategies. There's a chapter in there about that, assessment, assessing the situation. And then if things are really, really bad, you might stage an intervention. Or you might just kind of wait and see if they might pass through this uh, group and come out the other side. Uh, because I've known people who have done Landmark. They've done just the forum. They did that. 
and no matter how many times they were asked to do more studies, more courses, uh, they said no. And they said, you know, I got what I wanted out of that one weekend. I'm good. I'm moving on. And uh, another, another point I'd like to make, all these large group awareness training uh, companies that are selling seminars for self-improvement, I, I don't know of one that has had a scientific peer-reviewed study published that has uh, objectively measurable results that uh, denote that this group really can provide you with uh, positive results, such as our, our members are, have a lower divorce rate. Our members take uh, less medication for anxiety or have stopped taking medication for anxiety. Our members earn more money after they graduate. They make better grades in school. Something that can be objectively measured going five years out, uh, as opposed to a group that has not done their course curriculum. I don't know if any group uh, that does large group awareness training or what I would call an LGAT that, that can really say, look at this study. We really produce results. So, Rick, another group or people that have been in the news are, what is it, uh, Chad and Lori Daybell? Daybell, am I saying that right? Right. Chad Who, Daybell and Lori, and they, Lori Daybell. They, they murdered people in well, the name of this cult. I mean, her children. Yeah, we don't really know who killed the kids. What we know is they've recovered the bodies of, of Lori Vallows, who, who married Chad Daybell, became Lori Daybell. She, her children disappeared. No one knew where they were. Finally, they found their bodies buried on a farm that Chad Daybell owns in Idaho, near Rexburg. And, and Chad Daybell uh, was, was an author of doomsday books. He would right. write He's, these. He, he, these followers, it was very cult-like. So yeah, very what was cult-like. it? He would write these doomsday books. Yeah. And he would sell people on the idea that the end of the world was coming, that he could see it. He was a prophet. God revealed things through him. And he would prey on uh, people with a Mormon background because he himself is a, a Mormon, a graduate of BYU, and he would target people that were Mormon in hopes of, of convincing them to follow his prophecies and buy his books and so on. And Lori, Lori Ballow became very uh, enthralled with him, and he then indoctrinated her, and, and she believed at one point that her children were possessed by dark spirits. Uh, they were zombies, she said, and only through death could they be separated from those dark spirits and no peace. And I think what Chad Gabel did was he just wanted Lori, and he didn't want the children, and he basically manipulated her to a place where she went along with whatever he wanted to do. How the children died, we don't know. They're both facing trial in the near future. Uh, their trials have been bound together. So it will be very interesting to see how that plays out. And they will be allowing uh, cameras in the courtroom. So I think a lot of it will be televised. Again, you know, this was such a big story, especially when, you know, they killed the kids and then went to Hawaii. Right. Chad you know, and, and we're at a resort. I, I just, yeah. oh. the, 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 so horrible it's hard to get your brain around especially as a parent well chad Chad daybell had a a wife tammy who died shortly before he married Lori vallow and it was very suspicious he then got over four hundred thousand dollars in in life insurance money and then Lori's ex-husband also died uh killed by her brother who then also died so there have been a number of deaths connected to this whole thing, and it's very disturbing. And I think uh, Lori Vallow, in my opinion, is very similar to a woman named Wanda Barzi, who followed a so-called prophet named Brian Mitchell, who kidnapped a young girl, Elizabeth Smart, yes. in, U- in Utah. And Wanda Barzi was Brian Mitchell's only truly devoted follower, but they had a cult. He was the leader. She was the follower. And she would participate in crime with him 
including the kidnapping and brutal brutal assaults and, and imprisonment of Elizabeth Smart. Did Chad Dable have other followers? Uh, he had other people that really were taken with him, but Chad Dable, if you would see him, is the antithesis of a charismatic leader. He makes Keith Raniere look exciting. Uh, and, and Keith Raniere, uh, the leader of Nexium, is kind of a boring guy as well. Uh, so he never really garnered a big following, but there were people in particular in this kind of network of preppers, uh, end times preppers, called preparing a people, that they, they were kind of fascinated with Chad Daybell and, and people would read his books. I mean, he never really had a big following, but Lori Vallow was all in and she became his wife. It'll be interesting to find out if they start to turn on each other. I hope so. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm really hoping that like Wanda Barzi, who after they were arrested, Wanda Barzi cooperated with the prosecution. I think she might be out of prison now. Uh, Brian Mitchell is in for the rest of his life. Uh, I hope that Lori Vallow, uh, now known as Lori Dable, will We'll, we'll think about what's happened and maybe realize that she has been manipulated. And I'm hoping that though they're, they're both locked up, that they have no communication with each other and that maybe she can start thinking on her own and that maybe her family can help her and she can maybe save herself by Do explaining what happened to her and how she was manipulated. Do these cult leaders or charismatic leaders once they get into the prison population, do they get a new following? Are they so persuasive that someone like a Keith Raniere will be able to sort of still get the power trip because he will convince others in the pop prison population to follow him? I think it's possible, but unlikely in Raniere's case. He's already, by the way, asked to be placed in protective custody because he's had his experiences. He's been two years in a federal jail, you know, in Brooklyn. And I, I think he's, he's been accosted a few times that the other prisoners don't like him. I heard his glasses got broken, he got roughed up. And I don't think that somebody who's a child raper is going to be well, well appreciated or accepted. And I think Ranieri, who's, who's really a very little guy, uh, he claims to be a martial arts expert. I think that's one more lie that he told. And I think uh, he's probably going to end up in protective custody. Well, it is always, always, always fascinating to talk to you. I love having you on the show. Um, you're going to come back when we have another question. Uh, brilliant, wonderful, fascinating. As always, thank you, Rick Ross. Well, thank you, Melissa. It's great talking to you.